coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Dan does some sleuthing and finds that the story of a major new data leak isn't quite what it seems. Plus, a new Talos report that highlights a large number of unpatched and unprotected Memcached servers. We discuss just how bad that might be. And between some excellent feedback and Dan's recent adventures, we've got an itty-bitty deep dive on ZFS. Plus, more of your fantastic feedback, a rockin' roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 330 and is streamed live on August 1st, 2017. This episode is brought to you by our three very fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me every week is our host with a beautiful singing voice. That's right, it's Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. I had a few people call in about offers for weekend gigs. Is that right? Yeah, wow, yeah, look at yeah, you. Yeah, Another yeah, talent hidden yeah, over I'm, there. Yeah, I'm starting up a band. Always more mysteries. Anything Someone else we should it, know about there? Um, I was a photographer in high school, yearbook photographer. Hey, you're a man of... It's not on my resume. Secrets. No, well... It's not on my resume. A resume can only be so long. You got to take. You got to start taking the old stuff off eventually. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's just not relevant anymore. Well, Dan, uh, anything new with you you'd like to impart with your viewers, or should we just jump in this week? Um, I have a whole bunch of these sitting on my desk. Uh, it's stuck. Oh, Toshiba five terabyte hard drive. Yes, I have. Uh, let's see. There are. 10, 10, 1, 2, 3, 10, there are 9 here in the desk, and 2 spares sitting over there. Yikes, that's a lot. In one of the machines. Yeah, we'll talk about what I'm going to do with those later, uh, and um, how to upgrade a RAID Z array from one size of drives to another size of drives without any downtime. This is clearly something uh, that's becoming relevant to you, I suspect. It is, and I had a breakthrough in thought process last night and sort of realized, oh, oh, I might know a much better way of doing it. Excellent. I've been <laughs> I've been chatting with a few people on RSC about it, and they said, no, 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 try, try this instead. And I said, yeah, that's a good idea. I like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, but I still have to turn it on and turn it off every time I want to change one around. So, and then I realized, no, I don't. I don't have to power, power cycle nearly as much. Oh, that's exciting. Okay, well, I guess we better uh, we better jump in so we can get to that exciting segment. Yes, back to the real page. So, first up today, what do you have for us? I started... Th- this post, when I first saw it, I said, wow, this is a big deal. Oh, um, but then I realized it's not as big a deal as it sounds. The guy wasn't actually doxxed as far as I know. I don't think his personal address and stuff like that was put out. But the first headline I saw about this sort of said they dumped all the data. They grabbed all the data for this company and put it out there. 
but that's not what happened at all. So I started looking at another link, which is the, which is um, you know, Mandiant researcher doxxed by hackers. FireEye counters claim that internal info dumped. Now FireEye bought Mandiant, and Mandiant is a is a leading security researcher. Um, I think actually uh, I've met the guy that used to be in charge of it, Richard um, Betlich. Uh, he gave a talk once at one of the early BSD cans when he was starting out in the security field. Uh, and it was very good of him to come along, but now he's too busy to do that sort of thing because he's got all these security firms going on. But the way they announced this and described it in this one article that we're going to read is very different from how it's described in this article I'm about to relate to you. A hacker claiming to have compromised cybersecurity firm Mandiant published a trove of leaked emails Sunday, apparently connected to a single employee's personal computer. So right there, in one sentence, it tells you they got it from a single employee's personal computer. Not his work computer, not any database set that they had inside, but someone's work computer. Could have been anyone's work computer. It happened to be a Mandiant employee. While the attacker boasted of leaking the company's corporate network, of breaking in, sorry, of breaking into the company's corporate network. The available evidence only suggests that a personal computer which stored some work documents was hacked. That's easy to follow. It was fun to be inside a giant company called Mandiant. We enjoyed watching how they try to protect their clients and how their dumb analysts are trying to reverse engineer malware and stuffs. Excuse me. That stuff's the part, that's message, the worst. Right? Yeah, well... The whole thing that the hacker is saying reads terribly. It, it's, it sounds like it's a script kitty. Now that Mandiant knows how deep we, we breached into its infrastructure and its so-called threat analysis, its so-called threat analysts are, going, are trying to block us. Let's see how successful they are going to be. These are kids. You watch. Now Now I've pissed them off. Yeah, right. You're the next target. Stay so safe, Dan. Th- this, is one, th- this is one report. Now, if we go back and read... Um, sorry, that report was on CyberScoop. Let's go and read the one from the securitynewspaper.com. Earlier today, a hacker group named Elite Hackers, you know, 31337 has leaked personal details and files belonging to a security researcher working for Mandiant, FireEye's breach investigation unit. So the leak came about because of a message on Pastebin, but the leaked data contained more screenshots than documents. Images showed that the hackers might have gained access to the researcher's Microsoft Hotmail OneDrive and LinkedIn accounts. Earlier in the day, when Bleeping Computer was alerted of the lurk, leak, the researcher's LinkedIn account had been defaced. Oh boy, it had been defaced. I saw photos. Go and look them up. The leaked data also included work files related to the researcher's activity at Mandiant, but those files could have very easily been taken from the researcher's OneDrive account and not FireEye servers. Now that's... Again, they're being very clear about what they're saying. There's no hyperbola. There's no you know, exaggerating what's happened. So, 
What Mandiant says is, we are aware of reports that a Mandiant employee's social media accounts were compromised. We immediately began investigating the situation and took steps to limit further exposure. Our investigation continues, but thus far we have found no evidence FireEye or Mandiant systems were compromised. Okay. And the rest of the article just deals with this hashtag leak the analyst. So let's compare this to what the next web.com said. Their headline says, hackers kick off leak the analyst campaign by dumping data of $1 billion security firm. Yikes. And that's the headline that someone first showed me. And I said, what? <laughs> They've broken into them? Wow. So, okay. It's enough to send chills down the spine of any security analyst. Rather than keeping an eye on the hackers, the hackers keep an eye on you. Infiltrating your network and stealing your data before unleashing it to the world in a very public and embarrassing way. That's very different from the previous two reports. This nightmare scenario came a reality for the Virginia-based Mandiant Security and one of its employees after hackers spent a year inside of his computer. How do they know that? Where's that? Um, so that they, they name the guy. I'm not going to name the guy. The hackers dumped the contents of his email inbox as well as several internal Mandiant and FireEye documents. Mandiant primarily focuses on digital forensics and was acquired by FireEye in 2014 for roughly $1 billion. They dump... It's clickbait. It's absolutely terrible. So anytime, anytime you see an outlandish headline read it because chances are it's not true sometimes you see these headlines something something question mark those can always be safely answered no now uh, sorry they made this out to seem much bigger than it was and it 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 is important because a guy got hacked right right of course apparently there is nothing uh sensitive in what was obtained there is some internal documents, but we don't know that they're internal. They just had Mandian's name on it. Yeah, so, that's, a, that's a very good point. No. no. Uh, this is an example of where you have to read stuff carefully and very cynically. Don't don't just believe the headlines. Oh, my God, their data got hacked. Well, no. An employee's personal computer got hacked. So I think that's about the extent of it. Um I think they'll they'll know what's on that guy's computer and how how sensitive the information that, that was leaked. But if if I know documents that I happen to have on my laptop, I know it's not extremely sensitive. All the very sensitive stuff is secured away somewhere else, and you right. don't download it. And you take you may yeah you take precautions browse it about online. That. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, you'd have to be a, a rather special employee um, to have something. Like of that of that size and scope on your on your laptop at at any one time, interesting. Yeah. Well, good sleuthing so, here. Yeah, it's nice to you. Really do have to, especially in you know breaches or things like this, where people want to report on it very quickly. Um, there's bound to be mistakes or you know malicious misconstruing as well. So you really do have to be careful. Look at different sources. Try to compare them. Maybe watch our show. Yep. Something like that. Yeah. And all three. All three articles are dated July 31st. Okay, yeah. Hey. So they all had access to the same public information, but... Wildly different. 
Yes. Interesting. Okay, well, thank you. That's pretty fascinating. If you want to send Dan a whole bunch of wildly inaccurate stories, I can think of no better way than uh, signing up at our first sponsor this evening. Yeah, that's right. It's our friends over at Ting. Head on over to techsnap.ting.com. It's a way smarter way to do mobile. You'll save so much money, you can send Dan texts for days. Or maybe you're like, I don't want to use text. That's so old school. I know Dan's Twitter feed. I'll use my data plan for that. Ting makes it super simple because they do things differently. Head on over to the rates page and you'll find out just what I'm talking about. First, lines start for just $6 a month, right? So easy. You want two lines? That's $12. You want three? It's $18. So cheap. I challenge you to find anywhere else you can have a phone for $6 a month. I just don't think you'll find it. Plus, stack on top of that, that you pay for what you use. So if you don't use any minutes, you don't pay anything. If you don't use any text messages, you don't pay anything. If you use a little bit of data, you pay for it, but you only pay for what you use. That makes it super simple. And it kind of unlocks some sorts of, you know, a a new economics, a new way to think about your cellular plan. Instead of having to worry about signing up for a contract of the right amount of time and making sure that you've looked at your past usage and estimated and made sure that you're getting the plan that both doesn't waste extra data that you don't need, but has enough that for those heavy usage months that you will actually, you know, use it all or you're just losing money. Now, thing you don't have to do it. Just forget about all that nonsense. There's no early termination fees. There's no contracts. You have all the features you want, things like three-way calling, tethering. It's all there. And you just pay for what you use. So if you're like me and you're around Wi-Fi a lot, your bill won't be that big. You know, you send text messages if you need to, make calls if you need to. Probably you're, you know, pretty savvy and you have um, all sorts of uh, Wi-Fi enabled apps to make calls and send messages. Keeps it super simple and it plays so nicely with Ting. It also opens up some things where maybe you need a backup phone. Maybe you just want a phone for when you go camping and you don't want to bring your super expensive smartphone. Ting makes that super simple. You just, $6 a month, you can choose either GSM or CDMA. So you really have the pick of, pick of the litter, litter there. And you can bring your own phone. So whether you want to bring your own phone or go over to their excellent shop, you can see they've got, you know, they've got a ton of great options. SIM cards for just $9. they got the latest and greatest Samsung or Apple iPhone. Really whatever you want. And they've got a lot of great bargain phones. You scroll on down here to the bottom. Yeah, past all the shiny new fanciness. I know. But... They've got some of these flip phones that we've all been talking about, starting from like $63. You can pick up like a, a ZTE Warp Elite Blue Studio J5, 83 bucks. That kind of money, you can just buy this phone once and give it to a kid and give it to an employee. You can keep it in your truck. It doesn't matter. You have it when you need it. If you're in between phones, you just spring onto Ting. They've got a great, they've got an amazing app for the phone. They've got an awesome web app, or you can call them up. You'll get friendly customer service. Any of those options, super easy. Just activate it, turn it on. You'll be online, browsing, sending texts, making calls in minutes. So techsnap.ting.com. Go there. You'll get a $25 service credit. Yeah, that's right. Pretty awesome. And that'll let them know you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program. Hey, I know I do. Thank you to Ting for sponsoring us over here at the TechSnap program. Go check out Ting today. Alrighty then. What is next in today's uh, really exciting main segment? Well, I was reading this article and saying, oh, boy, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Yeah. Oh, wow, wow. Oh, I know who wrote this article. Is that right? 
Well, it turns out they're describing work done by my employer. So full disclosure, I am connected with this, but I didn't know anything about it until reading this blog post. Excellent. So this starts off with, um, in the not-so-distant past, we've talked about, uh, oh, um, what is it, uh, MongoDB being publicly available on websites. It was a, it was a kid's toy, um, like a toy that you could read recording, leave recordings for, and then... Uh, right, all oh, those bears, the kid yes. could play them back. Well, that Mongo database was fully available online. And this is slightly related to it. Um, I'll, I'll start off with the original article because that's what I found fascinating. Then we'll j- jump into the... Uh, Cisco's Talus uh, um, blog post, but it starts off eight months after three critical vulnerabilities were fixed in Memcached open source caching software. There are over 70,000 caching servers directly exposed on the internet that have yet to be patched. What's Memcached? Basically, think of it as a as a cache where you can put stuff in RAM. Uh, so that you don't have to go back to disk or back to the database or or calculate anything like that. Um, right. Any, anytime uh, you have something that you're you know having to put mm-hmm. time in or cycles in to do, maybe rendering a template or computing something from a data set, you can stick that in memcache and pull it back when you need it. Mm-hmm. Now, oddly enough, I don't use memcache because when I wrote fresh ports, memcache didn't exist. So I have a disk cache. Oh, okay, yeah. And all the all the pages for fresh ports get cached on disk, and there's a cache purging mechanism, and it works fairly good because some of the pages are heavy to heavy to compute. Um, but memcached is a software package that implements a high performance caching server for storing chunks of data obtained from database and API calls and RAM. That's just what you said. This helps speed up dynamic web applications, making it well-suited for large websites and data projects. And I know that I've worked on several projects which use this, but I've used it more in terms of um, the sysadmin side or configuring it for someone's program to use. While memcached is not a database replacement, the data it stores in RAM can include user sessions and other sensitive information from database queries. As such, the server was not designed to be directly exposed to untrusted environments such like the internet, even though some of the more recent versions support basic authentication. Well, there's very few products, generally speaking, that are designed to be exposed directly to the internet. Um, Some mail servers, some web servers, IMAP servers, stuff like that. They're designed to be to be there, but not memcached, not MongoDB, not Postgres. None of that should be accessible on the internet. It's they are tools for other things to use. Now, sure, someone's going to say, "Well, there is this one exception." Yeah, of this, course. We're not talking about it. Quiet down, you. Talk, do it this way. Trust me, don't put these things on the internet. So now I'm going to jump over to the other article, the original article, because this is where it gets interesting to me. So what happened is that back in January 2017, 
there is a widespread series of attacks on MongoDB servers. And basically, people were jumping on the servers and holding them hostage, you know, getting all the data out and holding them hostage. But what they were seeing is that they were seeing multiple competing groups attacking the same servers and saying, give us all your money or we're going to get rid of your data, which leads to the conclusion that there's no hope of actually getting the data if if it was ever there in the first place. It's just gone. So this happened. There is wide, not widespread panic, but there's a lot of people that get hit by this. And the bad guys are trying to weaponize this sort of approach. So the folks at Talus said, hey, listen, could Memcached have the same problem? Mm, that's a good question. So, so what they did is they decided to scan the internet. And in order to find out what was out there, they needed to know what version it was. But you can't just query it for what version because sometimes you backport patches and stuff like that. So basically, they crafted a query that they could send to it that would tell them whether or not it had been, it had been patched. Nice. They don't go into those details. But, excuse me. <clears throat> so they gathered all this information and they found more than 100,000 accessible servers with almost 80% of them still vulnerable and only about 22% having any authentication enabled. Now, of the servers that they found, the top 10 included US, China, UK, and Canada. As for vulnerable... Canada dropped off. Canada wasn't in the top 10 for the number and of vulnerable servers. aren't you servers. proud of that? I'm proud of that. But Hong Kong didn't make the top 10 for all servers, but they met the top 10 for vulnerable servers. Oh, man. Yikes. So tell, it sort of indicates that, you know, you might have a lot of servers out there, but they're not all vulnerable. And it's interesting how it varies from region to region. So they they did that first go around. And then what they did is they gathered all the IP addresses of that and sent notices to the owners of those IP addresses saying, hey, I'm a researcher for these guys and we've noticed this and you really should secure this and <laughs> and, and, and here's how. Oh, that's very polite. Um, I don't know how much de- – there's an example letter in the article, but they don't actually go into great detail of how you fix it, but it is there. So they waited. And six months later, they did the scan again. You'd sort of guess that people would act upon it. And you they would didn't. hope so, right? They didn't. Nine-tenths of the servers were still not patched. Ugh. Only 10% of the servers got patched. So the results six months later was still 100 and they got 106,000 servers. Only 69% were still vulnerable. So they went from 80 down to 69. So it dropped by about 11%. Sorry. The total servers still vulnerable was 69%. And the total servers not vulnerable was about 31%. And the number requiring authentication was now about 17. So it improved, but not terribly. All right. Now I'm jumping back to the other article because it goes into some of the details as to, you know, why is this important? Why does it matter? Well, first, memcache generally contains data that either gets displayed in the web 
on, on the web page or gets used to create the information on the web page. So if you can get access to the memcached server, theoretically you could read everything in there or delete everything that's in there. And imagine if you went and deleted everything in the memcached server, all of a sudden they got to go back and recalculate all that data. Yeah. And then what if they did it another second later and they deleted all the stuff in there? If you kept doing that, it's almost like a DOS attack because you're forcing them to recalculate this data, which is normally only calculated once and then used until it's no longer relevant. So at the best, it's going to be an inconvenience for the people running the servers. At worst, you could populate populate it with incorrect data. Yeah. There's a lot of malicious opportunities there. Basically, you're leaving the database or your web page completely open. And there's no reason for this stuff to be on public IP addresses. None at all. Or... Maybe there is, but really, it's ridiculous. Whoever's configuring this stuff is doing it extremely wrong. They don't have a, they really need experienced people who know how to set something up to keep it sort of away from people. They're not doing, they're not even running something simple like NMAP. Yeah, right. And you, you, you know, buy a $5 droplet from DigitalOcean and run nmap over there you know it's outside your infrastructure just run nmap on all your ip addresses and see you know what can i see if i'm out here yep oh look there's and mongodb oh look there's memcached oh look there's an ssh session right and it's you know it's, it's very important to make sure you go through you know, understand what your what your configs are if you're going to be using something, especially if you are using yep. resources that may be public. And like, yeah, sure, maybe you started up that way when you just have test data and you're just seeing if this is even going to work for you. But, you know, do it again when you're going to make this production. Make sure you understand, do some testing, you know, and have an understanding of what your attack surface might be. It's, it's just... If you set this up and you come looking for a job for me, you better be telling me that you set it up this way. Yeah, right. And then have a have a detailed justification about why. Yep. Uh, interesting. All right. Well, hopefully that's a lesson. Hopefully there are people out there being like, oh, yeah, what about that server? And, you know, can trigger a few second glances. Um, yeah. Uh, this is, I, I, I want to know. I want to know who the companies are that this happened to. Yep. And how they're doing. I, it's... Ugh. It's scandalous. It is, yeah. Anyone who calls themselves a sysadmin and set this up, it's terrible. Exactly. Especially in the modern day and age. I think that's a natural segue to our next sponsor today, which is, you may have guessed, our very good friends over at DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean DigitalOcean.com. There, you will find cloud computing designed for developers. But, hey, guess what? It's also designed for sysadmins. Uh, so don't worry if you're you know you know you're not a, not a developer uh, or anything anything like that because it doesn't matter it just makes it so easy to spin up VPS droplets super simple super cheap and with our promo code Snap Ocean you can get started for even less you get a ten dollar discount yeah that's right I'll say it again ten dollar discount. When you use that promo code, 
Oh, yes. And what will you find there when you do that? You will find a system that's super easy to get started, incredible APIs, and amazing community documentation. It all comes together with some of their new premium features, things like load balancing and firewalls. Yeah. So if you're worried, you're setting up, you're playing with Memcache after listening to the show, you're interested, you're like, oh, how does that work? Or maybe you're looking at competitors, things like Redis or other caching systems. DigitalOcean is a great way to try that out. You can spin up a new droplet, install some software. Don't worry about messing up any of your other systems. Make that super simple. They spin up in like under 55 seconds. You can find them in data centers all over the world. So there'll surely be one close to you. And if not, you can probably expect one pretty soon. But DigitalOcean has the resources to help you make sure that you do that properly. Between the community documentation where DigitalOcean has hired real editors to make sure that it's up to date, that it looks great, and that it's professional... And things like firewalls, which, you know, make sure that you have all the resources you need at the infrastructure layer to properly secure your networks. And they've got great stuff like private networking. So for data, for droplets in the same data center, you can connect them over their private network. One, not only is that traffic not accessible to the internet, but you don't have to pay for it. That doesn't count against your bandwidth. Now, DigitalOcean already has amazing bandwidth limits, so... It's not, it's not really a big problem for me, but it's a nice way to design a system. It's probably the proper way to design a system, and it's super easy to use at DigitalOcean. So go there, use our promo code SNAPOcean, check out their pricing page. You'll, you'll be amazed that for $20 a month, the kind of rig that you can get, you know, 40 gigs of all SSD disk, 3 terabytes of transfer, yeah, 3 terabytes, 2 super fast CPUs, and 2 gigs of memory. It makes it super simple. You want to go spin up a new caching layer to put in front of your web app. Boom. Dio's the place. They've got things like monitoring, load balancing, firewalls. They're working on object storage. They've already got attachable block storage that scales up to like 16 terabytes, which is super fun. Maybe you just want to play with ZFS on the cloud or, you know, another file system of your choice, but you should probably choose ZFS. Also simpler, simple on Dio. And that's why we love it so much. That's why we're so glad that they're a sponsor. They just make it so much they make it so much fun and so easy to play with all the technology we love. We use it for the show. We use their incredible API. They've got a ton of great apps and a super simple web dashboard. So don't waste any more time. Stop waiting hours to rent your bare metal servers. No. You just wait 55 seconds. Use our promo code SNAPOcean, get that $10 discount, and uh, get started with Memcache on DigitalOcean today. Ah, Dio. They really are a lot of fun, and they make things so simple. Yes. Okay, so... They do. This is something that we were hinting at at the start of the show. You teased a little bit, and I'm pretty excited for it. Yes. I have 11 of these just sitting around doing nothing. And what they are... Oh, sorry. These are 5 terabyte Toshiba hard drives. And they are going to be replacing a whole bunch of three terabyte hard drives. I have about 19 of them sitting over here in a box that are now surplus to requirements, and I'm going to get rid of them somewhere. I'm probably going to sell them on eBay after wiping them. Um, uh, a great little tool for wiping hard drives. Uh, what is it? DOD? D&D? Um, I forget the name of so- the software that it is, but every- everyone knows the name when they hear it. And basically, it's, you have it on a CD-ROM, you put it in, it'll basically destroy all the hard drives 
all the SSDs that are in the box. It just writes over them, writes over them, writes over them. Um, are you talking about uh, like uh, the the boot and nuke type software? Uh, the, it, it's something like that, but I can't remember yeah, the D-Ban. actual software. Is that the D-Ban. one? D-Ban. That's the one. D-Ban. Yes. I use D-Ban. Um, but that's aside. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I have a, a 10 drive ZFS RAID Z2 array in here. So that's eight data drives and two parity drives. Mm, that's one way of thinking of it. Uh, what that means is that you can lose two drives from this array, like go from 10 down to 8 and not lose any data. The, the array will continue to function as normal, more or less. Somebody's going to write in and say, no, it's not exactly as normal. But yes, the web server can continue running. The database can continue running because all the data is still there. You haven't lost any data. Now, this is important because the reason for for raid is 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 to avoid losing data but also to give you time when a hard drive does fail so you can replace it instead of your system screeching to a grinding halt so i have all these 3 terabyte drives and i want to change them to 5 terabyte drives so generally what people would would think is well you put the five terabyte drives in the system and then you copy all the data from one to the other and then you're done. Yeah, I, I've upgraded disks in boxes by doing that. Generally, it was, was just one hard drive that I updated. But when you've got 10 in a RAID Z array, you can take advantage of something called ZFS replace. Now, I've been doing that over the past few weeks with another box It only has six drives in it, and there's room for 12 in that box, but I'm only using six slots. And generally what I would do is I would pull a drive and then slide a new one in there and then say, okay, ZFS, replace the one that just disappeared with this one. And then what would happen is ZFS would say, oh, I've got to get data on here. Oh, it comes from there and it comes from there, and it it, it goes through a process called resilvering. That's a ZFS term. And eventually it recreates the drive based on what's on the other drives. And this is completely invisible to me, the end user. I just know that if I do zpool status, it'll tell me that this RAID Z2 array is degraded and it's resilvering that drive. Okay, and so when it finishes that process, that drive is back up and your data is now back the way it was before you pulled that drive. Now, what I did know, but didn't even think of at the time, is that I could have just slid that drive into another array, um, into another drive bay. I've got drive drive um, trays that the uh, disks just sit into, and then you can slide that drive tray straight into the front of the the um, system, and it powers up automatically. Uh, SATA and SAS drives are designed like that. You can power them up on demand and slide them in, slide them out. So what I could have done is just slid that drive in there. In fact, it was already in there, and what I was doing was pulling it out and putting it in the other slot. 
just because I wanted to replace all those six all in a row. But what I could have done, it was already in there and ready to go. I could have said, ZFS, replace this drive with that one. And it would have replaced it while it was in there. So the array would never have gone into a degraded state because it would have written the data from the one drive to the new drive. And then it was, when it was complete, just swap them over in the array. So no downtime, no degraded time, no increased risk. Because even though it's a RAID Z2 array, if I had a lost one more drive, it would have been down to no no resilience whatsoever. And if a second drive, if a third drive then had to die, that would have been it. All the data would have been gone. So what I'm getting at is if you have spare slots, you can just slide the drive in there, the new drive into a spare slot and say, use that drive now, replace it. And it happens automatically. So I was I had this IRC uh, this conversation on Twitter earlier earlier this week, late last week, um, and Alan Jude and I think John John Mark Gurney. Uh, we were talking, and he said, "Don't you have spare slots?" And I said, "No, I don't have any spare slots. This new server has twenty hard drives on it. Uh, ten of them are five terabyte, and ten of them are three terabytes. I want to replace all the three terabytes." And he said, "Well, if you don't have spare slots." What you can do is you can open up the case and plug one of these drives into the motherboard, something like that, and then do the replace that way. I said, that's a good idea. But then I still have to power it off and power it back on every time. And I said, right. well, not, not if you have the proper cables, because uh, SATA cables are designed so that you can hot, um, hot plug them. Hey, so oh. you, you don't actually need a drive tray and slide them and slide them out because that performs the same function as just disconnecting and connecting these drives. So long as you're not using the Molex pins. Oh, okay. You know the four pin ones? If you're using the proper uh, SATA connectors, mm -hmm. it will just power up properly. So theoretically, I could pull, pull the case out because it's rack-mounted, pop the cover off, find somewhere to insert this hard drive inside the case, <laughs> right. wire it up, and then close it up again. And then when it was done, reverse that. Yeah, okay. Hey, that sounds like but, it could work. But for me to put that drive back in the RAM, I'm still going to have to power off the box, aren't I? Uh, mm, that's less than ideal. Yeah. So... I came up with a better idea. Power off the box once. Take one of the existing drives out of a drive bay and put that inside the box. Hey, okay. Now I have spare slot. I have a spare slot. So I can slide something in there and start using that. And that'll make it a lot easier. Yeah. And I don't replace the units that are in the box, I replace another unit that's in a drive bay. Right, exactly. So now I have another empty slot and another empty slot as I start and replacing one by one. keep hot swapping. Yeah, until I get down to the one that, the last one that I'm going to replace with the one in the box. 
So I, with that approach, I only have to power off twice. Once to put something in the box and once to take something out of the box. That makes sense. And the more that I can put in the box, the more replaces I can run concurrently. I don't know if you can run multiple replaces. Oh, that's a good concurrently. I don't know about that. Do you have any estimates on how long this whole process is going to take? Um, when I did the last one, it mm-hmm. was six drives, and you can do one every day. It took about eight hours to replace okay. each one, to resilver, about eight hours. So basically, I would start one when I get in, into work in the morning, and I would finish while I was out. So I could have done it in six days, but it actually took about two, two and a half weeks. Because I wouldn't do them on the weekend, and I'd sort of feel a little bit paranoid about doing too many, too many in a row. But there's no there's no logic behind that as far as I can see. There's no logic not to do them all as quickly as you can. Because you're still going to have to thrash the drives in order to read all the data to populate the new drive. Um, but I do think that doing a replace... With an extra drive attached is a much better situation than pulling a drive and then resilvering it. Oh, yeah. No kidding. This sounds like it'll so, be a much more pleasant upgrade all of a sudden. <laughs> That's exciting. When are you going to start or have you started already? I haven't started already because time. Yeah, right. Um, I got to pull the box out and see whether or not I can, I, I can insert anything inside. I know for a fact that there's only 20 hard drives, but I have three... LSI something cards, each of which which each of which can handle eight drives. Hmm. So that's a total of twenty four, but there's only twenty. So I must have room for at least four more hard drives if I can find power and stuff like oh, that. Oh, that's exciting! So that's that's the big deal, finding the power for them. Well, I assume so, that we can look forward to uh, some pictures of you opening things up and doing some stuff. I guess so. What you want pictures of? Well, maybe I don't know possibly if they're interesting the most interesting thing so far is that i have this and this and they're not they're not together yet yeah that's true and that should happen soon exciting stuff so yeah i'm gonna try this and and see how it goes i I know when i first started off with with servers at home i didn't have drive trays i didn't have hot swap anything like that if i want to do any work on the drives i powered it off all the way on did some but I tell you, now that I've got drive trays... You're living a life I, of luxury. I, I know. It, it, it's very convenient. <laughs> Holy crap, it's convenient. That's and awesome. It, it's um, a good, uh, a decently cheap uh, 5U server isn't much different from a really good tower server. I think these uh, 4U and 5U cases cost me roughly between two and three hundred dollars each. Okay, hey, that's pretty reasonable. And a really good um, uh, tower case will push you two hundred easy. And the other thing to think of is they run quieter. Well, they run quiet, but they sure take up a lot less space. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, uh, before we uh, leave this here first segment of the show, do you have anything else you'd like to uh, impart on our audience about the wonders of ZFS? 
if anyone has already done this, let me know. Um, <laughs> ZS is really the best file system you can ever come up with. Um, and if you haven't tried it, try it. It is very, very nice. That is for sure. Do you know why they call it resilvering? Uh no, is that a trick question? No, I don't know the or- I don't know the origins of the word, but I think it has to do with the fact that the drives are actually very, very shiny underneath. I think that's why they call it resilvering. I'll look that up. Jer- At least according to the lone for- sysadmin over here, mm-hmm. it's a reference to antique mirrors which used silver as ah. the reflective coating. So you would have to resilver them from time to time. I don't know if that's true ah. or not, but I believe it. At least for okay. now. Okay. Okay. We'll go along with that. The things you might learn on the PeckSnap program. Uh, all right. Well, if you're really excited, like me, about CFS, especially after hearing about Dan's battles in the trenches with upgrades, maybe you're like, okay, well, I'm not quite there yet. I might need a helping hand. We have the answer for you. That is our final sponsor tonight, our friends over at IX System. Who is IX Systems? If you haven't, if you haven't heard of them, you are are really missing out. They are the premier hardware vendor, especially for open source software. So if you head over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap, there you will find the definitive guide to buying hardware for open source software. And you will find an incredible company powered by amazing Intel processors with great partnerships to basically all the OEMs that, that you could imagine and with a dedicated team of sales engineers standing by, ready and excited for your phone call, and to start a dialogue and discussion about building your new custom server storage solution, or really, you know, whatever you need. That's the thing that makes IX different. They've been in this game. They've worked with some amazing partners, people like Adobe, VMware, NOAA, large government agencies, large universities, big projects of all kinds. I mean, how many How many of you can say that you have needs of, you know, petabytes of storage? Well, IX, IX has those customers, and they know what they're doing, and it really freaking shows. Plus, just like we love ZFS, they love ZFS. They're big contributors to the OpenZFS project, especially with things like their project, FreeNAS, which is an open-source NAS technology. Uh, you may have heard of it because it's incredible. It helps you leverage OpenZFS, really really to the maximum of its potential, makes it super easy to configure. You get a web dashboard, all of the things that you might want. And they make it in a super convenient package. So whether you want to use the open source version, set it up yourself, build an array, learn a whole bunch about it, or you know and trust ZFS from listening to this program and this network, and you just need that solution for your home office or your business, check out the free NAS Mini. Boom, you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it right from IX and get it customized however you need. It's incredible. It's great bang for your buck. The case has been battle-tested. They've really put in a lot of great thought here so that it'll be easy to upgrade, easy to swap out drives. Plus, with IX, you get the kind of white-glove service that you could only wish for with other people. No, like, trying to open support tickets, but you have to call some weird number, and who knows if they actually filed it, and you wait seven days, and they eventually get back to you, and, oh, no, we won't replace that now. You will have none of that with IX. They really know what they're doing. They will have burned in and tested your hard drives before they've sent them to you. They've done burn-in testing for your whole system. They've configured it so that if you want, they can just ship it to you or ship it right to the data center, ready to be plugged in, racked up, and in production. That's how simple it is, and that's how good IX is. So whether you need a FreeNAS Mini 
or you want a new custom solution where you need you know a specific motherboard, the right processor. You got to have all these expansion slots. You got to make sure that it it can do this number of iApps for this long of a sustained rate. iX eats that stuff up, and they'll be excited to work with you. Maybe you even you know you're trying to plan the enterprise storage solution for your company for the next ten years, looking at things like the TrueNAS or even the TrueRack. That's where you'll, iX will be an invaluable partner. So. Go get started playing with ZFS. Go get yourself some exciting new hardware at ixsystems.com slash techsnap and let iX know that you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program. And now it's time for the feedback. The time in the show where we take a moment, reach into the mailbag, and uh, pick out a few choice letters to us from you, our wonderful audience. It's one of the best times in the show because we never know what will happen. First up, we've got a letter about hypervisor and ZFS setup for home use from Arcadius. Hello, Dan and Wes. First of all, thank you for the show, your great work and presence. Oh, thank you very much. I think a show like TechSnap is very needed in our tech community. Greatly appreciated from Europe and Poland. I'm writing to you to ask for advice on setting up a home hypervisor and a storage appliance with a ZFS array on one server. Recently, I read more about ZFS and all the great features that it has to offer and the benefits over standard RAID. I'm a technical person, and I don't mind learning ZFS. Hey, that's a great attitude. The main goal I have is to get a redundant storage for personal and family data to keep them forever, which I want to share over the local network to Linux and, sadly, Windows workstations. The secondary goal is to be able to host a PFSense VM to secure my network in a few VMs to create a lab environment. Here's how I picture it. So, some software here, a Type 1 hypervisor, Proxmox, or a Zen, or maybe ESXi, and then some virtual machines, a FreeNAS with 4 by 2 terabyte disks, redirected to the FreeNAS VM so that FreeNAS has raw access to those disks. Then a second VM, PFSense Firewall, with two dedicated NICs, also forwarded to the VM, um, Want to put, he wants to put this network behind a PFSense firewall and utilize Snort and OpenVPN at a minimum. Okay, nice. And then he's going to wants to have some uh, lab environment VMs spun up periodically for various scenarios, Kubernetes nodes, VMs for pen testing, that sort of thing. And then maybe, you know, a Plex VM to share media to the home devices. He's got a hardware list here, which uh, viewers can look into for more detail as needed. And some questions. Number one, first of all, Am I doing an overkill setup for my personal home lab use? Is there something incorrect about this setup or having a ZFS array along with all the hypervisor stuff? Is FreeNAS number two? Is FreeNAS a good fit for a VM to handle ZFS arrays? Or should I go with a FreeBSD install and manually set up the ZFS setup? Pros, cons with either of those options? Number three. Is RAID Z2 with four two terabyte drives a good idea? I think RAID Z2 is a good compromise between having two redundant disks and enough available storage for the cost. Number four. I am getting a gaming-like motherboard because it has relatively good specs. Server-grade motherboards lift the price drastically. Same goes for ECC RAM, and it doesn't look like I can afford it. Do you think a gaming motherboard or non-ECC RAM is going to be a big problem for this project? Hope that wasn't too long. I would appreciate any thoughts, suggestions on the matter. If you have any resources to suggest for beginner ZFS administrator, that would also be splendid. Well, since you were just talking about ZFS, let's turn this right over to you, Mr. Dan. 
Number th- start with question number three. Mm. Is RAID Z2 with two with four two terabytes a good idea? Two terabyte drives a good idea. No, it's not because you need at least four drives, five drives to do RAID Z2. So you could only you could do RAID Z1, but if this is data you really really like, I would want to have more than that. Um, if you can go with six drives, I would do RAID Z2. Um, otherwise, what you're all you're going to be able to do with four drives is either RAID Z1. But that only that allows you to lose one drive, but it can be any one of the drives. It'll be the it'll give you more space than say two mirrors rated together would give you. But if you had two mirrors rated together, uh, sorry, two mirrors striped together, all you're going to get is two ter- uh, four terabytes out of this. Um, a RAID Z2 will give you slightly more, but two mirrors uh, striped together will probably be faster or not much difference than a RAID Z2. But for a RAID Z2, you're going to need another drive. Um, if you did a RAID Z1, you can only lose one drive. But RAID Z1, losing just one drive is is good. Is, is good but then if you lose one more drive say while you were building or something it really gives you no spares right right the so, rebuilding there that's a really key argument too because you know you may be like well okay i can afford to take the, the array offline for a while if i need to should it come to it but yeah you're also at risk while you're while you're trying to get back to that yeah. uh redundant but, state uh, most of the stuff i have is raid z2 uh the last new array that i built was raid z3 so i built something with 10 drives raid z3 I can lose one drive. I can lose three drives, so that's nearly a third of my drives, and not have anything go out. Um, I don't have any data storage, which is just mirrors. I have operating systems, which is which are just mirrors, and some servers I have out there. Some of my jail servers are just mirrors, but I don't have any backups. If this is if this is your important stuff, I would put as much redundancy into it as I could. So that's yeah. that's number three. Yeah, and that of course will depend on how you know how much what your data backup situation is, how how good of a yeah. job, and how much redundancy uh, you feel you need for you know things like video yeah. files versus maybe password databases. Uh, number two. Should I use FreeNAS or should I go with FreeBSD install? He He's a self-described beginner ZFS administrator, so I would go with FreeNAS. And he's talking about putting FreeNAS in a VM on the hypervisor because he wants to run other stuff. I would install FreeNAS as your main operating system on here. Generally, you put them on, on USB thumb drives and then that gives you all your drives for data. Uh, because FreeNAS is not a big OS. Mind you, you can get huge USB thumb drives now. Right. So that's what I do. I would do. Um, is FreeNAS a good fit for a VM? I'm not sure if he's meaning a virtual machine here. Yeah, I wouldn't I put so. FreeNAS in a virtual machine. I'd run FreeNAS on the raw hardware. I know some. I think some people do that, but I, I wouldn't do that. I would put them on the raw hardware. 
Otherwise, where are you running? Oh, there, line 22, 21 in the config. He, he wants to put that up. He wants to put the hypervisor and the VMs on that. So he has room for at least five hard drives. Yeah. If you really want to go the hypervisor setup, then go ahead. But I would, I, I would rather, I would even want my hypervisor and stuff like that on on, on the RAID ZFS, and I would be booting from that. But that's because I do FreeBSD, and I would, I would be booting off uh, ZFS. Right. Yeah. So it depends a lot on on what you end up choosing. Um as your as your hypervisor uh, hypervisor environment, um, and I, I know he's looking at some things like like Zen um, or even ESX. I, that would make it different. I have more experience um, using things like KVM, which I have run. Like you can definitely do, you know, mm-hmm. run FreeNAS inside if you'd like yeah. to. Um, it depends too a little bit on how like when are you hoping that this is going to be in like home production use necessarily? Because like I like Dan's suggestion for. You know, using FreeNAS to do a lot of things right, it'll get you to a position where you have a, a good array that you can trust and is built yeah. properly. Um, so, if you no. need that working right now, that would be a good option. If you have time, maybe it would be fun to do you know build this thing from B- FreeBSD from scratch. But you would want to do it a couple times at least, so that you knew what you were doing. You wouldn't you know, build it one time, yeah. put a bunch of data on it, and it may be a better idea to use. Um, some other things play with it in VMs once you've got this set up or on a cloud provider and get more familiar with uh, ZFS before you go that route. Now, on online 80, he's talking about the secondary goal is to host a PFSense VM to secure my network and a few VMs to create a lab environment. Ideally, what I would do is I would put PFSense on its own little box. I wouldn't put it in a VM. I'd have it on its own little box. Because if you ever have trouble with this box or you have to reboot it or anything, you've got nothing securing your network. Um, You might even want to get a little Raspberry Pi with two NICs in it or something to do something like that. Um. I'm not. I'm not a fan of virtualizing my firewall. I'm a fan of having that as a separate piece. But I know many people do it. I see yeah, that it is, all the time. It is time. pretty popular. Um, so I think you can definitely do it. But but uh, yeah, it just, mm-hmm. again, depends on you know how often are you at home? How often do you expect to need to yeah. be able to get in to try to troubleshoot from um, from remote? And what's your what's your budget look like? But I mean, and my situation is very different from yours. Uh, right, that's a good point. Big rack behind here, so my choices are not are not necessarily what you want to do. Um, are you doing overkill for this? No, I don't think this is overkill at all. I, I don't think you're overspect for anything here that you want to do. Um, he also asks, uh, you know. Server-grade motherboards lift the price. Should I be using ECC RAM? I think this has been settled. If you can use ECC RAM, use ECC RAM. But you're going to be better off using ZFS whether or not you're using ECC RAM or not. Um, If you want a better pick on your hardware, I would go into the FreeNAS forums and say, hey, listen, this is the hardware I'm thinking of doing. Uh, What do you think? And see what they say. Um, they will give you a much better 
idea of how free nas would be on this than I can. Um, and they will have much better suggestions because they're more u- used to building specifically for free nas. So that's what I would try. Nice. Yeah, no, ho- hopefully that's helpful. Um, I'll just also add, I, I, I know you haven't uh, considered necessarily, but um, Ubuntu uh, as a base OS might also be something you should consider. They've got um, very nice ZFS support in the latest uh, stable releases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have a lot of, you know, if you're more if you're more familiar with Linux, that may be a good launching off point. Or, uh, like Dan said, I think installing FreeNAS on the bare metal wouldn't be bad either. They now have, uh, you know, contain things where you can run VMs and jails and all that sort of stuff on top of it. Uh, so if you want to go that route. Yeah. Uh, FreeNAS 11, jumping ahead to another article that we're going to talk about later, but f- later, but FreeNAS 11 is out. And it adds Beehive Virtual Machines, so you can run your VMs in there. There you go. And it has jails and plugins. So in, in, in Beehive, you can actually run Windows and, and yeah. other operating systems. I know they've made a lot so, of re, sub, uh, improved that support a lot recently, which is great. Yeah. So 11 may be what you FreeNAS 11 may may have the the uh, VM and hypervisor stuff that you want instead of installing a hypervisor, then putting FreeNAS inside. So yeah, it sounds like you really have to decide, you know, how does it all need to be in one box or not? And then is this an appliance or more of a general purpose sort of system? And hopefully that can give you some guidance. Or if not, feel free to write back to us and uh, we'll cover it again. So uh, thank you very much. This was great feedback. A lot of good discussion. And if anyone else has advice, then uh, hey, you write in too. Moving on to our next piece of feedback today. This is a tweet here from Anthony. Oh, and it's an image. All righty. So for TechSnap, there was a question not too long ago about using Pixie Boot for imaging. I'd like to comment on that. I work for an MSP, and I'm currently working with a school district. We're using Free and Open Ghost, also known as the Fog Project, for this task. While Fog has a DHCP option, we've just configured our existing DHCP server to, one, specify a Pixie server, two, specify the Linux boot image being hosted by Fog. Once a machine is configured to use Pixie, we then register with the Fog, and we can begin capturing and deploying images. Hey, that sounds that sounds pretty easy, I, I'd like to think. It works with LDAP and Active Directory and will automatically rename your images. Oh, is there a second one here? Ah, I see. It just was cut off. Yeah. It works with slightly. LDAP and Active Directory and will automatically rename your machines and join them to your domain. You can hit them no. up with questions at, at Anthony Scardinia on Twitter. Thank you, uh, Tony. Now, for some people will, will ask, what's an MSP? They're a managed service provider. So basically, you contract them and they give you the services. It's sort of like not running your own data center. Um, that makes sense. And the FOG project is a computer cloning and management um, uh, tool. And I started looking at it, but didn't get very far into it. But basically, it's open source. Um, they support Windows, Mac OS, Linux, and even multi-boot setups. Um, and I haven't gone into it any further than that. Yeah, I haven't used it um, myself, but I've heard of a lot of people using it, especially as replacements for things like um, the old school but quite popular still, uh, like the like Norton Ghost and other similar software for for laying down disk images yeah open ghost is that really is that from norton ghost i believe so but i'm not actually sure but anyway yeah, i've heard like was... really nothing but good 
good things about it. I've not used it myself, but if any of our audience has, uh, I'm sure Tony would appreciate, you know, having mm. like-minded people write in with their experiences as well. Anyway, yes. that's another good option. If you haven't explored pixie booting, uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and, you know, it works pretty well and can make it, you know, I like to have on my network, I usually have like a Windows installer and then a couple Linux or, or BSD installers that are just hanging around that you can pixie boot into, which makes it really easy if I have friends who need computer help or need to just reinstall, then boom, right from the network. I mean, that does assume that you have a laptop that has a network card. Not everyone does. Yes, yes. But for those of us that are lucky enough to, there you go. Okay, well, thank you very much, Tony. That was uh, some great feedback. Uh, Now we've got one more for today, and that's from Kevin. Kevin's writing about a cheap managed switch. So I guess this is like meta feedback. It's feedback on feedback. Yep. Hi, guys. A few months ago, I requested suggestions for a cheap managed switch that had a correct implementation of VLANs, i.e. not hard-coding all ports as members of VLAN 1 like TP-Link and Netgear. I ended up with an HP Procurve 2824 off of eBay. It's older, but for $40, including shipping, it will serve my home network well. Thanks, Kevin. You've got a little little picture there. HP Procurve. Yeah. I was looking at them, and, and yeah, that that is a good deal. It's a little 24-port hub, sorry, switch. And one, two, three, it looks like four uplinks, dual personality. Yeah. Oh, it may even have... Um, it, it has um, uh, fiber. Oh, nice! You see those? You see those three, four, four ports on the right. That that is fiber. Those are FS, uh, yeah. SFP, SFP. There we SFP, go. Yep. FP. Yeah, I can't. I can't see any details on this particular one. But yeah, I'm sure that that is um, fiber. Awesome. Which is pretty cool. Well, thank you, Kevin, for writing back. Um, Glad to know you landed with something and that it's going to work well for your home network. That's kind of awesome. And it's nice to have a nice big, like, that looks like it'll be a rock-solid switch for you. I don't have any experience with HP switches myself, but uh, awesome. I used one years ago, and I do remember being able to configure. I I don't know if I had VLANs in it. Mm, mm -hmm. I don't think I did. Uh, Wait. I don't remember. I don't remember. Yeah. But yeah, it was, uh, I, I remember using an HP switch, but it did have some sort of GUI or web interface. I can't remember anything more. That makes sense. This is exactly the kind of thing, you know, the people I do know who, who going back to our first question, who will want, run large setups with Zen or ESXi where they do have, you know, they do have a bunch of uh, large one or two of these like large boxes to do all their virtual machines and they've got their their routers and pf senses and all those sort of appliances in there combined with a nice uh you know managed switch like this you can you can emulate a much larger network uh pretty easily so it can really take you up from a, a piddling home network into the real deal Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you for letting us yeah. know, Kevin. If anyone else has some good suggestions, or if they're just curious about the first time we covered it, that would be episode 318. And now it's time for the final segment. That's right. Everyone's favorite, the roundup. 
What do you have first up for us today, Mr. Dan? You always got something surprising in the roundup. Well, the first thing, I started reading it. I didn't realize that it was from one of my favorite um, providers. It, it's it's about Netflix. And I have read before about Netflix's uh, in-house monkeys with a wrench type thing. What they do is they purposely sabotage their own infrastructure to see how it heals and how it adjusts. And they actually have a whole set of programs that will go out there and do this. But what this post is about is how do they do that so it doesn't inconvenience the customer? And this one paragraph will explain it, how they do that. To limit this blast radius in CHAP, CHAP is the the name of this uh, chaos automation program. With an adorable logo. In CHAP, we take a small subset of traffic and distribute it evenly between a control and an experimental cluster. We wrote a Mantis job that tracks our KPIs just for the users and devices in each of these clusters. This makes it much easier for humans and computers to see when the experiment and control population's behaviors diverge. So basically, you you want to do a very small experiment, but you won't be able to see that within the huge volume of data that you're collecting out of all the other people. So what you do is you direct a whole bunch of customers over to these two other nodes and they have similar amounts of data on it, and you make sure that what goes on there, there's not a huge difference. So that's what they're doing. So you, you can actually see the difference between, between the experiment you're running and true traffic without it getting lost in the noise. So that, that's their strategy. So it was very interesting to, to read down to that part and say, oh, yeah, this makes sense. So... Sometimes they just do little experiments like this to see how things change. Um, And then they go into, well, what happens if if something goes wildly wrong? Well, they have these experiments run unsupervised. There's not someone sitting there watching because that would really be boring. Oh, yeah. So they have something that monitors, and if if things start diverging too much, they turn it off. They, They shut it off. So basically... When you're watching Netflix, you may be part of a control cluster, you may be part of an experimental cluster, and really, you shouldn't notice at all. It really it, it's, it's a fascinating blog post. They also linked to, uh, I guess they have an open source CI slash CD platform called Spinnaker, which I had not heard of, which is some of the stuff they use to implement this under the hood internally, but it looks like you can use it uh, for yourself as well if you're interested. But in general, I'm just always so impressed with the engineering that comes out of Netflix. They really have, you know, they run like entirely on EC2 except for the the FreeBSD stuff that they do as well. But they've they've really embraced this like cloud mentality or whatever you want to call it. But they, you know, they really Uh do engineer for failure and for chaos and take that very seriously. And it's it's really fascinating. Because we all want to watch our Netflix. Right. It's very important that we get that on time. First time just starts. Uh and most of the time, yep. it does. Uh, and um, I don't actually remember having any problems watching something on Netflix where where it stutters constantly or anything like that. But yeah, I really like this. 
Awesome. Good find. Okay, so up next in the roundup... Uh-oh. This one might be a bit distressing for those of us who value democracy. Hacking voting machines at DEFCON 25. Well, I think that voting machines are notorious for a lack of security. Um, we've heard many past reports about, you know, we, we couldn't get a look at it. They keep it all very quiet and secure. And we know what happens when people aren't very forthcoming with their software. They turn out to have lots of problems in them. And that's what's happened here. Uh, if you don't know what DEF CON is, DEF CON is a huge uh, computer security related conference that happens every year in Las Vegas at this time. I've been to one. It, there's a huge influx of people there. Um, it is such that you do not take your own laptop or phone to these events. Uh, it's that risky that you you don't expose your good gear to this stuff. Or you take a laptop and when you get home, you completely reinstall it. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but basically, people take burner phones. That's amazing. Um, but... They were able to break into the hacking machine, into the hacking machines, into the into the uh, voting machines. That's it, not as complex as you think. Um, there needs to be more oversight on on voting machines and the code that goes into them. And the vendors are notoriously reticent to give any information out or to respond to any real things. They, um, yeah, there's a lot of money involved in these things. I yes, think. Ex- and, yeah, large large contracts and agreements over multiple years, and then you know there are all kinds of things that are done nominally for for security, but that what really amount to is that we don't get to know how these work or what software they run, uh, and it, it's just asking for trouble. In one of the photographs, I noticed there's a sticker on one of the machines that says, "This is not a camera." Yeah, that's pretty funny. I've heard, I've heard that. I saw that somewhere before. Um, Bill, Bill Paul was talking about this uh, somewhere. He, ha- uh, I'm going to have to find out more. I'll ask Bill on Facebook and see what's going on. There we go. <sighs> okay, well then, moving on. Uh, if Bill is a real person, which I suspect that he might be. The UK Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, thinks he probably doesn't need end-to-end encryption. And therefore, you don't either. Yep. Bill is real. Bill is very real. Um, Reading this out of context, it sounds much worse than it is, but it is still pretty bad. UK Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, has called on messaging apps like WhatsApp to ditch end-to-end encryption, arguing that it aids terrorists. Well, yes, cell phones and cars and trucks aid terrorists as well. Let's get rid of all of them. She wrote, real people often prefer ease of use and a multitude of features to to perfect unbreakable security. Why can't we have both? Who uses WhatsApp because it is end-to-end encrypted? Lots of people use it specifically (laughs) for that reason, rather than because it is an incredibly user-friendly and cheap way of staying staying in touch with friends and family. People use it for both. People use it to keep in touch with friends and family because it is secure. Because sometimes they're talking about stuff 
they don't want other people to read. That's not an unusual desire. Companies are constantly making trade-offs between security and usability. And here it is, and it is here where our experts believe opportunities may lie. No, you have no opportunities there whatsoever. Companies, yes, make trade-offs between security and usability. But that does has nothing to do with end-to-end user encryption. It, ha- it happens behind behind the behind the scenes nobody realizes it's there that's how it should work would you prefer to go to your bank and not have any end-to-end user encryption anyway scrolling way down in this article we 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 start reading the op-ed this is in an op-ed and the emphasis is theirs to be very clear The government supports strong encryption and has no intention of banning end-to-end encryption. But the inability to gain access to encrypted data in specific and targeted instances, even with a warrant signed by a Secretary of State and a senior judge, is right now severely limiting our agency's ability to stop terrorist attacks and bring criminals to justice. But I'm sorry, if WhatsApp did not have end-to-end encryption, the terrorists would be using some other type of encryption because end-to-end encryption is out there and freely available. Worst case, they'll write their own end-to-end encryption and use that. Stop this sort of approach because it's not going to get you anything. Nothing at all. It's just going to make it worse for everyone else. There. Sorry, this sort of stuff is ridiculous. No, no, it is. I think I think you covered that I'm just perfectly. I really have hardly anything to add, but it is a little bit nice to see that they they will you know there's like a little bit thrown there at the start of yeah okay we get that it's important maybe that's the starting point for a dialogue to continue and that you know the, the side we're on can can show that it just does, it just doesn't make sense the cat's out of the bag and uh, this is the world we live in now yep okay well then we have one more piece of feedback and it's uh, on a much happier note. Yes, it is. Freenas 11 is it's now out. here. Woohoo! <laughs> this version brings new virtualization and object storage features to the world's most popular open source storage operating system. Did I say operating system twice? Yeah. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, Freenas 11 adds Beehive virtual machines to its popular SAN NAS jails and plugins, letting you use web scale VMs on your free NAS box. It also gives users S3 compatible object storage services. S3 being Amazon's yeah. Amazon's. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. I mean, I can see a lot of developers, you know, people are already S- having to install little daemons to run that can do that. But if you could just do it seriously at home, then you can have, you know, you can have an app that talks to, to S3 to do your offsite backup and does the same thing to talk to FreeNAS, which is kind of neat. Now, I really want to look this up. I forget what the S3 stands for. S3, Simple Storage Service. Yeah, there you go. That's what it is, Simple Storage Service. Um, yeah, I know that Bacula has support for that, I think, in the Enterprise version. And I think it's coming to the community version soon. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, that, that That is interesting. I don't know if I'd use it. I still like having that stuff local here. But maybe for copy jobs, to copy stuff up there. Yeah. But I'd, need, I'd want to encrypt it. 
Yep. And it can make it easy, too, because you can then retrieve it on other things. They have tools like S3 Sync. You can even mount S3 uh, with Fuse. Uh, and AWS lets you, you know, you can run it as a HTTPS site as well. So if you want to yeah. have people access it that way, you can do that, too. And their, uh, their dashboard looks pretty impressive. I'm tempted to have that. I know I don't have that for my ZFS stuff here at home. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, for for an appliance and just one of like casual administration, um, it's awesome. But there's really there's really few reasons not to use it if it would be useful to you. And with all of these features, how could it not be? Indeed. Awesome. So awesome work to uh, everyone who contributed to that. Super exciting, and it's great to see. Um, you know, there's a little bit of a kerfuffle there with the with the previous uh, version 11, but it looks like things are you know, working great. Uh, and I'm excited to see where this keeps going. They seem to have improved. Exactly. And hey, that's what counts. Well, that wraps up today's episode, episode 330 of the TechSnap program. Thank you very much for joining us. If you'd like to find more, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find the archives, the contact form, the calendar, the IRC room, and a live stream. So there's a ton of fun. Come join us live. Come be in the IRC tons of fun we appreciate it or just go catch up on the archive look at the previous version of this show there's a ton of other great shows shows like linux action news user error lots of good stuff if you want to find more of us i'm at west Payne on twitter he is at TechSnap underscore dan couldn't couldn't be easier thank you for joining us send us some feedback and come back next week see ya